We're studying the book of Deuteronomy in these important days at Hillcrest, and you should be aware by this time that the book of Deuteronomy really is a book of sermons. It's a book of the words of Moses. In fact, that's what the Jews knew the book of Deuteronomy as. They simply called it the words because that's how the book of Deuteronomy begins. Now, these are the words of Moses. And as you read Deuteronomy, with the exception of a couple of uh, minor passages of Scripture in terms of their length, most all of it are the words of Moses. Three sermons of Moses, one of them dealing with the past, the other, and the most lengthy that we begin today deals with the present And the third and final message that he'll give to this new generation of people about to enter the promised land is a word about their future, particularly as it relates to the importance of obedience in the days ahead. Moses is restating the law of God for this new generation of Israelites after 40 years of wandering in the desert. The word Deuteronomy is a Greek word that means second law. It's not a second law in terms of being another law. There's only one law of God, and we've got it in the old covenant of God known as the Old Testament. But it's second in the sense that it's a restating of the law, a retelling of the law for a second generation of Israelites who, unlike the first generation who are now all dead and buried in the desert, this generation will, in fact, inherit the promised land, and Moses knows as he's nearing the end of his own life, that they need to hear the word of God cast appropriately for them and that they need to be sure that they love it, revere it, and obey it. Now here in Deuteronomy chapter five, we begin the second of these important sermons of Moses. And this one takes up the lion's share of the whole book. Really from Deuteronomy five to about Deuteronomy chapter 29, this is all one message of Moses, you think I'm a long-winded preacher. You need to get over that because this is a lengthy, lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to take a look at it over the course of the summer bit by bit. The first sermon, of course, you remember, was historical. Moses is looking back on the disobedience of the people and their wandering in the desert, how they got to where they were. This second sermon, if the first sermon's historical, the second sermon is mostly theological. It's not a look back, it's a look within at what's really important in terms of godly conviction, what we're to believe about God and godly behavior, how we are to live for God. And that's why what Moses tells the people of God then is critically important for us as the people of God today. So that being the case, it's not at all surprising that Moses begins this second sermon, which again is mostly theological. What should we believe and how should we live? It's not surprising that he begins this sermon with a restatement of the very heart of the law, the very core component of the law of God, which you know more colloquially as the Ten Commandments. Sometimes called the Decalogue of God. Decalogue, Decalogos, 10 words in the Greek. 10 words of God, 10 commands of God. And this Sunday we begin 
a very important summertime study, kind of a series within a series on the Ten Commandments. We're going to slow down for a little bit and spend 12 Sundays on the Ten Commandments. Today, I simply want to get us started with a little overview message of this passage of Scripture, which is really, again, a restatement of the Ten Commandments that Moses gave to the people the first time nearly 40 years before that are recorded in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be focusing on the passage in Deuteronomy 5, and as we do, I think it's important to begin by reading the whole thing. So this will be a little bit longer reading today. Best to stretch our legs as we stand together, not only for the purpose physically of stretching our legs, but of honoring the wonderful authoritative word of the living God. Let's begin reading in chapter 5, verse number 1. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? amen? And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them <clears throat> or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added, no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them 
to me. Father, how grateful we are to be here this morning and how grateful we are for this very familiar passage of Scripture that has been taught to our children and our children's children for generations and generations in this new generation and press them upon us and upon our hearts in a new and a fresh and a vital way that we may know the Word of God <clears throat> and live in a way that reflects your holiness and your character that you may be glorified in all the earth. We pray it through the strong name of our risen Lord who fulfilled this law in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, church family. Y'all can be seated. I wanna give you this morning, just in this little intro message, three very important things about the 10 commandments that I'd like to call your attention to as we get started in this important study. The first is the historical context of the Ten Commandments, their historical context. The Ten Commandments, of course, form the very core, the very fabric of the covenant that God had made with his people Israel. In fact, one Old Testament scholar, Raymond Brown, calls these commandments the covenant obligations in embryo. The covenant obligation in embryo. In other words, they're a summary of the entirety of the covenant that God had made with his people, the nation of Israel. You recall that God had begun by calling one man, Abraham, unto himself, who was a pagan worshiper. And Abraham became the father because of his obedience to the call of God. He became the father of a great nation. God not only called Abraham, he called Abraham's progeny unto himself the nation to be his treasured possession and his holy nation. And God is a God who teaches. God is a God who equips. God doesn't just call, say, go figure it out for himself. God is a God who helps us out, amen. He's a God who shows us, who instructs us how to live in a way that pleases the very God who calls us by his grace. He wanted Israel to know that, that they'd been called by a holy God for a holy purpose. He, he wanted them to know not only the God who had called them and the God who had delivered them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He wanted them to know and to revere and to live in a way that honors the God who was leading them to a good and productive land, which itself was part of the covenant promises that had begun with Abraham. And toward that end, God gives them a set of righteous instructions. He gives them his Decalogue, these 10 words, these 10 commandments written, the Bible says, on tablets of stone that were given to Moses for the purpose of giving to the people. Those tablets of stone, of course, would eventually be housed in the very Ark of the Covenant itself, along with Aaron's rod that budded and a couple of other very important and holy relics of that day and time, but these certainly would have been the most important. So the covenant that God had originally made with Abraham, the covenant that God had then extended to the nation there at Horeb on tablets of stone in light of the Exodus, God is now taking that same covenant to this new generation and renewing the covenant as this generation now stands ready to go into and inherit the land that God had called them to inherit by grace. God had called them to inherit the land by grace. God had delivered them from their enemies, 
by grace. God had given them this law by grace in order that his people might live in ways that reflected the holiness and the righteousness of his wonderful character. And speaking of the character of God, that leads naturally into the second thing I want you to notice about the commandments. Not only their historical context, but their theological basis. For they do have a basis in matters of doctrine and matters of theology. Listen, the Ten Commandments are important not only because of the role that they play in helping us to know how to honor God and how to live that we might please God. The Ten Commandments are important, are y'all with me say amen, because of what they teach us about God. I mean, anytime anybody sets a list of rules, that always tells you a lot about the person who's making the rules. Like we got rules in my house. My kids had rules. And their friends that came over had to abide by the rules. And guess what? The rules were a reflection of Jimmy and Judy. Somebody say amen. We made the rules, right? And so they would be a natural reflection of our care. Well, the same is true right here. And that's why these commandments tell us a whole lot about God. The first words out of God's mouth are important. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It's important to notice there that God uses his name. Well, the first two words, I am. That's what Moses learned 40 years prior there at Horeb at the burning bush. He learned the name of God, and God uses his very name, Yahweh, I am. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who's now bringing you into this land. God reminds them, I brought you out in order to take you in. And I am the one who's doing all of that because I am what? The Lord. I am sovereign. I am mighty. I am powerful. And so the commands that follow that important introductory statement about God himself provide a very compelling portrait of God. They're a picture of God in miniature where his character and his authority are just totally obvious. For example, when God says, I am the Lord, your God, we learn that the God that we worship is not a distant God. He's not a God a million miles away out there in the nebula of outer space. God is a personal God, right? He's a God who knows us by name, a God that we can talk to and a God who speaks to us. When God puts the kibosh on idols of any kind, when God says don't do it, what do we learn about God? He's a jealous God who'll tolerate no rival. He'll tolerate no competitor. He'll tolerate no substitute God. When God says, don't take my name in vain, what do we learn about God? He's an honorable God, amen. He's a holy God with a holy name, an honorable name. And we learn that God is a God who's to be treated, not flippantly, not casually. He's to be treated with incredible respect. When God says, remember the Sabbath, what do we learn about God? That he's a sovereign God. He's Lord of all time. He's Lord of every day of the week. And that he's a God who cares about how we use our time. He cares about how we prioritize time, which is a precious commodity, how we use our days. 
and how we use every second on the clock. When God says, honor your father and your mother, what does it tell us about God? That God is a God of authority. That God demands authority, that he is our authority, but he's a God also that delegates authority. And he wants us to respect authority, both in himself and to whom he delegates it, first and foremost, to the leaders of our homes. When God says, do not murder, what does it tell us about God? It tells us that he's a God who gives life. All life comes from God. And I'll tell you what else. It tells us he's a God who values life. And if God, as the giver of life, is a God who sees life as precious, all life is precious, life is to be valued, don't you know he wants us to value life in those all around us and that he's Lord over matters of life and death. When God says, do not commit adultery, what does it tell us about God? Well, it shows that God is a God that values purity and faithfulness in relationships. And God expects us to, to keep the commitments that we make to others, most importantly, in the most holy relationship of all relationships, which is to our, uh, to our spouses. He expects commitments to be kept just as he remains true to the commitments that he makes to you and to me. God has never failed a promise. He's a God who makes promises and a God who keeps promises, and he expects the same out of the lives of his holy people. When God says, do not steal, what does it tell us about God? That everything ultimately comes from God and that everything ultimately belongs to God and that we'll give an accounting one day to God for how we use what we have been given by God and how we have respected what God has given to others. It reminds us that we don't have the right to take what God has given to somebody else. And when God says, don't bear false witness, what does that tell us about God? That God is a God of truth. He's a God of truth. And he expects his people to value the truth, to speak the truth, to live by the truth. It shows us that God values honesty and integrity in daily life. And then finally, when God says, do not covet, what does that tell us about God? Well, it reminds us that he's a providing God. And aren't you thankful for that this morning? That God is a God who supplies all of our needs according to his riches in glory. And the one who covets just kind of shakes a fist back in the face of God saying, you haven't provided for me correctly. And so God is a God who gives us everything we need and he does it in a way that we can live within so that we show contentment and joy with what we have in life. Everybody with me, say amen. Do you see how these commandments reflect the very character of God? That's why they're important. And listen, that's why they're eternal. They're eternal and they're lasting in large part because they are a direct reflection of God who himself as sovereign creator and Lord of the universe does not ever change. And with that in mind, that takes me to the final thing that I would remind us about the Ten Commandments this morning, and that is their contemporary relevance. 
their historical context, their theological basis, but notice also their contemporary relevance. You know as well as I do that there used to be a day when the Ten Commandments were recognized by just about everybody in the United States of America. Isn't that right? Yet here's the thing, the sad thing, the sad truth. Most children in America couldn't recite the Ten Commandments if their lives depended on it. And you know why? Because their mothers and fathers can't tell them what the Ten Commandments are if their lives depended on it. One of the things that you're going to see when you get into the very next chapter, Deuteronomy chapter six, is this incredible statement given by God to parents to teach these statutes to their children, to write them upon their hearts, to write them upon their door frames and upon their doorposts and upon the lintels and upon the mantles. Keep them in front of your children all the time so that they never forget. We have drifted away from God in terms of what we're teaching to our children. And we're in the midst of reaping a whirlwind in large part because of it. I was up in Nashville last weekend because I inherited some of my grandparents' furniture. My mother's downsizing, and I got some of that wonderful old solid wood furniture that I brought back to my house, had to rent a truck. Cost me a million dollars to get free furniture. Unbelievable, it did, it's crazy. We were going through, but the thing about it is mother hadn't cleaned out any of that stuff out of the drawers of all that stuff. And I was going through stuff. It took me longer to go through the stuff than it did to load the stuff in the truck. And one of the things I saw was an old uh, bracelet of my grandmother's in there that had little circles on it. And upon, it had 10 little gold circles on it. And on every 10 of the circles was inscribed one of the 10 commandments. I remember that when I was a little boy. My memory was instantly jogged. I remember her wearing that Sunday school. She taught Sunday school, little kids, primary kids in our church for years and years. And I ran across that and I thought, well, this is crazy because I can start teaching about the Ten Commandments. But it was just a reminder of how we used to go to great lengths to teach what was most important to our children. Listen, you walk into Jim and Judy Locke's house and the first thing you're gonna see when you walk in the door on the wall to your left is a posting in a frame of the 10 commandments. We got them in our house and have had them in our house for just about as long as we've been married. But that doesn't happen much anymore. We're ignorant about what's most important to God. And the result of that ignorance is a near complete disappearance of what we would call absolute truth in America and in the world today. And what's really heartbreaking for me is that the disappearance of absolute truth, in other words, when I say absolute truth, what is right has always been right and always will be right. And what is wrong has always been wrong and always will be wrong and that stuff never changes ever, ever, ever. Well, that's gone. Now truth has become relative. We call it moral relativism. And the heartbreaking part is that that's even true among people who go to church regularly. 60% of people who attend church regularly don't believe in absolute truth. The majority, six out of 10 churchgoers. And with respect to students who attend church regularly, eight out of 10 students don't believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. They've bought into the lie that says, just because it's wrong for you doesn't make it wrong for me. And just because it's right for you doesn't make it right for me. Can I make a statement? If it's right to God, it is right to God today and always will be right tomorrow. And 
The same is true for what's wrong. If it was wrong to God then, it's wrong to God today and it always will be wrong. A few years ago, Ted Turner, who was the founder of the Cable News Network, owner of the Atlanta Braves, announced that the Ten Commandments were obsolete. I mean, I, I don't know if he's still alive or not. I wouldn't want to stand before God making a statement like that. He just out and out announced they're obsolete. He basically said the Ten Commandments don't relate to today's problems. They're outdated rules, outmoded commands that ought to be replaced with what he called 10 voluntary initiatives. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, we chuckle at that and we think, well, that's crazy. Well, that's how most people think today. Uh, on the other hand, I was greatly encouraged when another media personality a few years ago, Ted Koppel. How many of you remember Ted Koppel of ABC News 2020 Nightline with Ted Koppel? He had the real fine hair, right? Looked like a helmet. He gave a commencement address at Duke University several years ago in which he said very boldly, I think, what Moses brought down from Sinai were not the 10 suggestions, they are the 10 commandments. And then he says, are, not were, amen. Now we wish we could bring him back because we'd watch him on the news, amen. Listen, the reason that we've lost our way moral is because we've come to see optional and personal what God views as eternal and binding. Eternal and binding for all people, in all places, for all time. That may be one reason God wrote them in stone, amen. We often use that kind of language, right? When you talk about something that it's ironclad and it's not gonna change. That's what you say. It's written in stone. It's done. Well, that's what God did with the Ten Commandments. He etched them in tablets of stone because God's standard was never to change. His standard has not changed any more than God. Let me ask you this. Has God's character changed? Well, no, God's character hasn't changed. And here's the thing. God's standard which is given as a reflection of his character, has not changed either. Some people say, well, what about those New Testament passages where the law seems to be minimized or even obliterated altogether? Passages like Romans six fourteen, For sin will no longer have dominion over you, for you are not under law, <clears throat> but under grace. Well, let me just say this morning that there are three very important classifications of what we typically refer to as law with respect to the Jewish law, the law that was given through Moses to the people of Israel under the old covenant of God. There's first of all, you remember the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law given to the Jews was given for how Israel, ethnic Israel, was to worship God. There are all those regulations about religious feasts and religious festivals and the distinction between clean and unclean foods and ritual purity and sacrificial offerings. I mean, literally the cutting of a, of a lamb's throat and the bleeding out of the lamb to offer as a burnt offering. That's part of the ceremonial law. And all of those tenets of the law no longer binding for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. You know why? Because they've all been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Every one of them. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews that Christ is our once for all sacrifice. 
and that the sacrifice of Christ provides eternal redemption. We never have to offer another blood sacrifice because his is once for all and forever. We learn also that Christ is our eternal high priest. Therefore, the regulations of the Jewish priesthood no longer are binding on the people of God today. We learn that Christ is our eternal rest. We learn that Christ has forgiven our sins once and for all and forever. He's taken it all upon his body on the cross and he's delivered us from all of that. Christ has fulfilled the law in that respect as it's given in the Bible. And then there's not only the ceremonial law, there's the civil law of God. And the civil law of God consisted of those ordinances that governed Israel as a theocracy under God. You understand what I mean by theocracy, right? The United States is a constitutional republic. Sometimes we call it a democracy, but it's not a theocracy. The nation of Israel was a theocracy. They had their own nation with God himself as the head. And so when you read about uh, laws that pertaining to the civil organization of the nation of Israel, guidelines as you see some of those in Deuteronomy, how to wage war, how to fight, what to do with an enemy when you defeat them, uh, how to handle debt, uh, what about the cities of refuge for those who had accidentally killed others. We'll look at that as we study Deuteronomy along the way. Legal penalties. Well, that too is no longer binding for believers. See, if that were the case, you'd be throwing rocks at many of your kids. Amen. So, no, those have all been uh, abrogated in large part because uh, the people of God today, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is not a state. We're not a state. Ethnic Israel was a state. We're not a state. The church is a spiritual kingdom living within and under the God-given authority of the state, Romans chapter 13. Everybody following with me? Amen. And so those laws are no longer binding on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. But then there's a third element of the law, and that's what we call the moral law of God. And the moral law never goes out of style. The moral law never goes out of style. Say that together with me. The moral law never goes out of style. That's right. Because the moral law are the righteous and eternal commands of the Lord that regulate our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our families, and our relationships with other people. It's the moral law of God that is eternal and that remains eternal. It's the moral law of God that's perpetual and binding in large part because the moral law of God, get this, I need to know y'all still with me, say amen. The moral law of God was in effect before the 10 commandments were ever written on the tablets of stone. People are held accountable in the book of Genesis for what they did. And they didn't have any law. Everybody following with me? It had not been given yet. For example, God judges Egypt and send 10 plagues on them for what purpose of judgment? Idolatry. Idolatry. Every one of those 10 plagues is in some way a judgment on one of the idols of Israel. But the law hadn't been written down when those plagues took place. Or what about what Moses learned at the burning bush? Take off your sandals. 
for your standing on holy ground. See, Moses learned something about the importance of honoring the presence of God and honoring the name of God, even before it had been written down anywhere. Later, you remember when God fed his people out on their journey from Exodus with the manna from heaven. Have you ever thought about there may have been a reason why God only gave them the manna six days out of seven? Go out and collect it, but not on the seventh day before the law was ever written down. In the book of Genesis, Cain is judged as a murderer. Ham is judged for dishonoring his father. The Sodomites are judged as adulterers and sexual deviants. Abraham is revealed as a liar and Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of stone for being a covetous woman. And all of that happened before the Ten Commandments were ever written down on a tablet of stone or anywhere else for that reason. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. The moral law of God has always been in effect. I mean, we, we come into this world not even able to read as a little child, but we know instinctively some things are right and some things are wrong because God gives us the gift of conscience. He writes a lot of that on our hearts from day one. And here's the thing. All of that, as important as it is, here on this side of the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can see every one of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. They're all there. I mean, John 14 and 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me ask you a question. Isn't that just another way of saying I am the Lord and I'm the only Lord and you'll find salvation in nobody else? How about 1 John 5, 21? Little children, keep yourself from what? <laughs> Idols. That sounds to me like second commandment. I don't know. Doesn't it to you? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any other image. Or what about Matthew 6 and verse 9? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or Matthew 12, where Jesus said, for the Son of Man is Lord of the what? Of the Sabbath. Paul repeats the fifth commandment in Ephesians 6 when he says, Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is what? Right, well, where do we get that? Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first command with promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long life on the earth. Jesus addressed commandment six and commandment seven in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then what does Jesus do? He broadens the meaning of murder and he broadens the meaning of adultery. He does not restrict them. And then the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Colossians 3 says it just as straight. Do not lie to one another. 
There it is. And with regard to coveting, how about James 4 and verse 3? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your what? On, your, on what you want. So let me ask you, are the Ten Commandments still binding on the people of God today? Of course they are. Now, they're not there to save us. And I think it's very important that I say that right there up front because I've had many people through the years, and you probably have too. Well, you know, I don't need anything about that church down there, and I don't know about Jesus. I, I, just, I just live by the Ten Commandments in order to please God. Liar, liar, pants on fire. How's that working out for you? As if you could keep them perfectly. I suppose if a person could keep them perfectly, you wouldn't need a Savior on a cross. But that Savior who died on the cross is there fundamentally as a reminder, you ain't that good. You need something else than this failed attempt to live up to the standards of the law. You ought to try to live up to it. I do. But every day it seems like in my life I do something stupid. See, we're all just half a step short of stupid. We are. Lord only knows how many times you've broken a commandment between your house and here this morning. Hey, hey, hey. Now, the Ten Commandments are not there to save us. Only faith in a Savior who died and rose again can save a person from the consequences of sin. Because the Bible says it, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus can save a person. And if we're saved by keeping the commandments, we're just in a boatload of trouble. Because the fact that we just perpetually seem to break them reminds us how desperate we are for God to save us. Make no mistake, we need to love the commandments. We need to know the commandments. We need to revere the commandments. We need to honor the commandments. And as far as the Lord gives us grace to do it, we need to keep the commandments. But we can't view keeping the commandments as a way to be right with God. No, the reason that we strive to keep the holy commandments of God is not to get right with God, but it's to please and to honor the God who by grace alone has the power to make us right with him. So the 10 commandments are written in stone for a reason. They matter, they're given by God, <clears throat> but they're given by God for a holy purpose, to remind us who God is, his character, his holy standard, and to provide a guidepost from a loving God to a fallible people in terms of how to live in ways that bring honor and glory to the majesty of his wonderful name. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen and amen.